And now a bit of an experiment in oncology education as we meet with community-based medical oncologist Dr. Michael Schwartz, who was asked to identify three patients from his practice whose case histories and comments in an interview would be informative for our program. To begin, Dr. Schwartz describes a woman confronting a very difficult decision. The patient is a 68-year-old, very active woman who's actually the wife of a gastroenterologist in town who on routine ultrasound was found to have an abnormality of the breast, wasn't seen on mammogram. This led to a biopsy, and ultimately she was diagnosed with a stage 1 breast cancer. In terms of the specifics, it was a 1.4 centimeter infiltrating lobular cancer. Margins were uninvolved. Like most lobular tumors, it was ER positive, HER2 new negative. The sentinel lymph nodes were clean. This is a pretty common presentation. ER positive, which is most patients. HER2 negative, which is most patients. Node negative, which is most patients because of mammography. And the one thing that is kind of different about her is the lobular histology. From your perspective, do you think differently when you see a patient who has a lobular cancer compared to the more common ductal cancer? Yeah, we're thinking hormone responsive when we see lobular. We're also, to some extent, a little bit worried about the contralateral breast. I guess the other thing is lobular kind of has a reputation for not responding to chemo, or you don't find that? Well, in the neoadjuvant, in the upfront chemotherapy setting, it clearly doesn't respond as well. I'm not sure in the adjuvant right, setting. Right, yeah, we probably don't have that. I guess the other thing is lobular a lot of times is more occult in the breast. It can be bigger. Yeah, and I think also, as the case here, her mammogram didn't right. demonstrate it. you don't it. see it. You don't get the classic calcifications, and this was picked up on ultrasound. So I guess a huge question with this subset of women, again, probably the most common subset of women is should they receive adjuvant chemo? And I guess probably five or six years ago, a patient like this, 1.4 centimeter tumors for sure would get adjuvant chemo. But what was going on in her situation in terms of that question? You're absolutely right. A few years ago, this in a healthy woman with a tumor larger than a centimeter, we would typically offer adjuvant chemo because we had no real way to determine who would not benefit. And now we have available the Oncotype DX assay. And for this situation, ER positive, no negative patients, it helps us guide that decision. So when you first saw her, I guess the topic of adjuvant chemo must have come up. Yeah. In fact, that's mostly what we discussed Again, she came with her husband, who is a physician. Had he gone out and tried research and all? He actually hadn't, but she had. Really? Extensively. What kind of work did she do? She's not employed now, but she's very intelligent. And she had researched it. Her husband actually, she sort of pushed him out of the room. And this was a decision that from the beginning she was going to make whether or not she should get adjuvant chemo. Did she have any preconceived notions about chemo? Had she had any friends or relatives who'd gotten it? She had preconceived notions in terms of things like the hair loss, nausea. She did know people who had had it. She was very concerned how it would impact her quality of life, but was definitely willing to do it if there was a benefit to her. So when people in this situation where the benefit of chemo is not clear, even before you get started, 
maybe you try to assess their personality. Are they the kind of person who just wants to avoid toxicity, is willing to maybe take a risk that they might lose some benefit versus on the other end of the spectrum, the patient who wants any possible benefit? How did this woman fit into that spectrum? Yes, she really wanted to balance those two things. And that was what was most difficult for her because she wanted to say, if there's enough expected benefit, I will do it. But I'm only willing to accept side effects if that improvement is worth it to me. And she really agonized over the decision. So had she already heard about Oncotype when she saw you? She actually came with the results of the Oncotype test to the office. Very infrequent, actually. Usually we're the ones ordering. Oh, so who ordered it? She urged her surgeon to order it. So as soon as she knew that she was the right subgroup of patients that it should be done. And she had it done and came with the results and the interpretation. And I guess, you know, when you say sort of the typical patient or the patient that we usually think about, ER positive, HER2 negative, node negative, but now we're starting to see people talk about using Oncotype with tumors that are node positive. Maybe we'll see what happens over the next few years. There's more data is coming out all the time here. But maybe there's a subset of patients, they might have a poor prognosis, but yet it's not going to get better with chemo. And can we find those people to spare them the side effects of chemo? I think it's very likely. (laughs) So this lady, and it's interesting, we just did a symposium in the American Society of Breast Surgeons meeting, and this topic came up. Is it the surgeon who should order the archetype? or the oncologist. And one of the things that a number of them commented on was that if they do it, then the patient's ready to make a decision by the time they get to the oncologist. If they wait for the oncologist, you have to wait a few more weeks. And I guess that's a little tough for a patient. Yeah. I think it depends if it's a surgeon who primarily treats breast cancer, knows Mm -hmm. when that result is going to matter. Sometimes when you have surgeons order things, they tend to overorder. We get a lot of PET scans on mm-hmm. T1 breast cancers. Right, right. That's a good point. Although I think at this point, now that more patients are hearing about it, and certainly docs know about Oncotype, unless somebody knows for sure there's no way they're going to get chemo or they absolutely were going to get chemo, it's a pretty good piece of information to include in the decision. Yeah, and it definitely simplifies the initial visit to have that information there. And before we talk about what her oncotype was, what's your experience in general in terms of using the oncotype and whether or not is it usually what you think or do you get surprises? About a quarter of the time, I'd say we get very surprised, and actually, one way or the other. You know, it's interesting. They've actually done surveys like that where they take 100 consecutive things. And that actually is, I think, a number that's not too far off. I mean, maybe one out of four, maybe even more than that. Where, And I guess it could be either you think the patient doesn't need it and it turns out they do or vice versa. Right. And if you think about the implications, everybody always thinks about, well, avoiding chemo would be so great. But then identifying somebody who maybe has a high risk that could really benefit from chemo, I mean, now you're talking about maybe avoiding relapse. Absolutely. So that's a pretty good benefit. So what was her oncotype? So her recurrent score was 20, which I believe interprets to about 11% risk of relapse with tamoxifen or hormonal treatment. So based on that, it could have been lower. It could have been flat out low where you get into the range of a 5% risk, but this is still pretty low. So did she actually say to you, what's the chance that by taking chemo, that's going to prevent me from having a recurrence? 
That's kind of a sophisticated, yes, she did. did she? Because that's she kind did. of a sophisticated and, thing to and, figure out. In fact, she was already armed with the information that she felt her score fell in the low intermediate risk group where there hasn't been really an established benefit to chemo. Right. And in fact, there's a trial, the Taylor trial, trying to determine that. Which she was offered entrance into. Right. And so you participate in that study. I do. I guess the tricky thing is that patients in that study who have intermediate scores like her have to agree to let the computer decide or randomize between chemo and not. That's a tough one. Personally, I know my colleagues have had a very difficult time accruing patients in that study for that reason. And you know, it's interesting, though, the study is accruing well because there's so many patients in this category, you know, breast cancer with ER positive, no negative disease. So if you, let's say, bought into the fact that if she takes hormone therapy, she's still going to have, let's say, around a 10, 11% chance of recurrence. What would you calculate the chance then would be that she might avoid a recurrence by going through chemo? Two to 4%. So you go through chemo for a few months, lose your hair, maybe not feel well on a 3% chance it'll prevent recurrence, which is a pretty big benefit. I guess there are a lot of people who would do that. How about her? Yeah, and like I said, she needed, I think, a good week to think about it and called me and said, I'm comfortable with my decision not to get chemotherapy. You know, another thing about it is, I was just thinking about this recently, the recurrence score and the numbers you get, like 11%, I guess it's really important to remember is that's assuming the patient gets hormone therapy And you also wonder about the issue of adherence to hormone therapy. Are they really going to take it and get, let's say, a five-year course? Now, she was postmenopausal, 68 years old. In terms of hormone therapy for her, what were you thinking about? Yeah, well, typically we offer an aromatase inhibitor, but with sometimes a disclaimer that you go through the side effects. And for certain people, the arthralgias don't worry them because you know you can stop the drug and the arthralgias go away. But osteoporosis actually was already a very big pre-existing concern for her. She had had prior hip replacement. She was in need of knee surgery. And at the same time, she was active and played tennis as much as possible. So for her case, the risk of worsening her osteoporosis led to the decision to start on tamoxifen with the possibility of switching her after a couple of years. And how has she been doing? She's been doing very well. And any side effects whatsoever? She's pretty in tune and she say, well, maybe my arthritis a little bit, but she's actually handling it very well. Now, has she been on abisphosphonate for her osteoporosis before this? Yeah, she's on Fosamax. And you kept her on that, or what kind of bisphosphonate is she on now? So she's on Fosamax. We did have a discussion about the role of an IV 5-phosphonate, such as Zometa, not only from an osteoporosis standpoint, but the difficult discussion right now whether it will reduce the recurrence of breast cancer. I guess also getting back to Oncotype, we should remember that the original Oncotype studies when patients like her were done with tamoxifen because those were kind of the pre-aromatase days. But now, I guess the last San Antonio meeting, they verified that it also seems to be predictive of people on AIs. So that was, I guess, a really important thing to determine. You would expect that the AI would have even a lower recurrence rate. So if she could have taken an AI or if she were able to switch her, Maybe that 11% would even be down a little bit, I guess. Yeah, and like I said, my first choice in her situation would have been an AI. 
And I guess, too, we haven't been really sure about what the optimal hormone strategy is in postmenopausal women in terms of the possibility of doing some kind of a sequence, which is, you know, what she may end up being on. There was finally a paper last December at San Antonio that looked at this question that the big 98 study, that was the one study that was really going to try to look at this. And so they compared an AI for five years, in this case it was letrozole, tamoxifen for five years, but then they had two other arms in the study, start with tamoxifen, switch to an AI, start with an AI, switch to tamoxifen. It seemed like maybe the study could have been bigger, or might have had more data for us. to. What did you think about that? Well, I agree with the title, the big one. I didn't right. think they would have had enough patience, but the take-home message that I got was... It appears that as long as you got an AI at some point, you did about the same. I guess the one thing, again, I think they really couldn't be definitive because even though they had like thousands of people in the study, they were still, you know, difficult to really see this. But the one thing that I have heard about that study is the issue of in the long run, it seemed like the patients were better off starting with an AI, maybe switching to tamoxifen if they were having problems. But even though it wasn't maybe enough patients, that starting with a tamoxifen didn't seem to be as optimal. So as you mentioned earlier, in general, for the usual patient, this one's very unusual because you know she already had a severe bone problem. At this point, what we're seeing in our patterns of care studies that people routinely do start on an AI. What about the choice of an AI? How do you approach that? I personally now consider them, in my mind, fairly equivalent. A lot of it is based on personal experience using them, and sometimes the decision is based on what samples we have. But right now, I'm not convinced that in the adjuvant setting, there's a major difference. I would say that in the back of my mind, some of the information on letrozole that maybe most high-risk patients may reduce the metastatic relapse, sometimes I'm swayed to go that route. You know, one of the things we hear when we do surveys, obviously there are three AIs, Nastrozole, Letrozole, and Eximestane. We didn't even really have data on upfront Eximestane until December, so there's not as much follow-up with that. But with the other two, it's kind of in the same ballpark. As you mentioned, the Letrozole in some of the studies seems to lower the estrogen levels, so maybe that's going to be a little bit different. The Nastrozole, I think we have more longer data on. So, But what we've seen is... Generally, anastrozole or letrozole. I mean, do you use exemestane to start I, with? I do use it to switch. I right, don't to usually switch after start a few years. It. Yeah, and it's funny because almost everybody believes what you believe that they're about the same. But you know, it's just like, well, what data do you have to work with? Another issue about hormone therapy, of course, is side effects and whether people take the drug. It's kind of confusing to me looking at this because you see studies in the literature that say, well, they measured, you know, whether people actually refilled their prescriptions, et cetera, et cetera. And people start dropping out after a couple, few years, maybe even earlier. What do you think goes on in your patients in terms of adherence? I think my patients are pretty good at adhering, but there's a pretty high dropout rate in terms of needing to get off the AIs sooner than we would like, and then ending up switching them to tamoxifen. And is that usually because of arthralgias? Almost always. And what's the typical syndrome that they complain about? Well, most patients, fortunately, it's a mild 
they're stiff in the morning, and as the day goes on, they don't actually take any medication for it. And then there's this other end of the spectrum where people really say they can't function, and they're on ibuprofen and NSAIDs, and it helps a little, and they just... And you have they, to do something. They have to do so they what, can't stay on. What would you estimate in your own practice? What fraction of women do you end up having to switch or stop yeah. it or... I would say about 20%. Yeah. It's funny, you know, when we survey oncologists and researchers, they give us 10, 15, 20. So it doesn't sound like it's in the 50% range, although I guess it's being studied. Any other kind of symptoms that you see with AIs that tend to be problematic? You know, people have talked about vaginal symptoms, you know, sexual difficulties, vasomotor symptoms. Do you see that? We see it, but I don't see it any worse with the AIs than I see with tamoxifen. Do you think it's the same? I think some of them are worse with tamoxifen. And how do you assess whether a patient is taking their medicine? Do you just say, well, are you taking your medicine? Do you have any trick questions or things you do? No, I mean, we keep pretty good track of when we're refilling hmm, prescriptions because every time we write a prescription, right. we copy it. And if somebody has gone eight months mm -hmm. and they've seen me and they're not asking for a prescription unless they tell me they got it from another doctor, we sort of can guess. Do you think that the cost, you know, in these times where a lot of people are struggling even more than usual is an issue in terms of whether people are adherent to the drugs? The cost is an issue. I don't know if it's so much right now a compliance issue, but it may be an all or none issue where they just won't accept being on the drug. You know, this issue of the side effects of hormone therapy, did you see the paper by Jack Cusick? I actually interviewed him for one of the audio programs. Yeah, with the benefit right. of judging it one month. I mean, when I saw that paper, you know, I was sitting in a staff meeting and I looked over at my email and somebody, you know, I looked at that and I just stopped the meeting. I said, whoa, wait a second. I thought that was a fascinating setting. Basically, as you said, what they showed was that women on hormone therapy, this is right out of the ATAC trial, so they either got tamoxifen or anastrozole, the ones who had symptoms had fewer relapses. I mean, a lot fewer. What did you think about that? I thought that was great because information like that, when you're in the office with a patient and you can encourage them, you know, I know you're feeling lousy, but this is a great sign. I mean, it really helps them stick to it. It's interesting because the investigators, a lot of them don't like the paper. They say that it's retrospective. We want to see, you know, the usual conservative thing about, you know, let's wait and get more data. But the editorial that came with it pointed out that in a way it's kind of similar to what's seen with the EGFR inhibitors like cetuximab or erlotinib, where the people who get the more rash usually have better anti-tumor effect. It's kind of the same sort of concept. Yeah, and it's the same conversations in the office and the same thing with hypertension and Avastin. Right. And, you know, it's clues that you're helping someone. I mean, we don't want to see people suffering or totally miserable on an AI with arthralgias, you know, and really having problems. But as you say, the more common scenario where they have some sort of aches and pains that they can live with, putting it in a more positive context, it's going to be really interesting to see if that plays out. One other thing before we go on to the next patient is the issue of the bisphosphonates because, you know, she's already on one and this is for her bone, but we also have data that's starting to come out on the question of do the bisphosphonates also prevent metastases? What do you think about that? Well, I think it's pretty 
amazing data. And I think it's the type of situation where you get the data, unexpected results, and now you're trying to explain how it happens. It's a very difficult situation in the clinic right now because the IV biphosphonate that was used is not really covered by most insurances for that indication. Right. Now, if they have osteoporosis- And that was alindridate, xolodronic acid. That's correct. But if they have osteoporosis, you could maybe- Can you get it reimbursed just for being on an AI, for example? It depends, and I've gotten different answers, even from our own billing office, and there doesn't seem to be a consistent answer- you mentioned this woman came in with information. Is this something that's, I mean, it's already now, it was presented a year ago. It's already been published in the New England Journal. There was a third reduction in recurrences, although you know, we need more data, blah, blah, blah. But a third reduction without much downside at all. Are patients coming in asking you about it, or is it too far buried in the literature for them to see it? No, I would say many patients come in with that information. And to be honest, I often bring it up also right. because- I know if I don't bring it up, the next time I see them, they're going to say, you didn't mention this. Right. (laughs) So I tend to bring it out. I guess the other thing is when you look at downside, again, they got a dose every six months, a lower dose than normal. The one thing I guess a lot of people are scared of is osteonecrosis of the jaw. At that dose, they didn't see it at all. Have you ever seen a case in your practice, incidentally? Many. Many. In fact, we were seeing cases when it didn't have a name yet. Wow. So I shouldn't say many, but they so stick out in your mind because right. it's such a disaster. Is it? Yeah. I mean, usually it doesn't get better. I mean, we so, should, I guess we should mention what happens, which is you have sort of open bone inside their yeah. mouth near the jaw. Yeah. And I think now we don't see these worst cases. Right. But when we were using zolendroic acid monthly for multiple myeloma right. and these patients were coming in with these exposed jaw, and we didn't know we were causing it. We were continuing the drug and the dentists were extracting the teeth and making it worse. We had people that were, you know, had miserable situations. So they were uncomfortable. They were ill. They were. Now, at this point, I mean, it's said that people who are going to go on a bisphosphonate, quote, should go see the dentist first and kind of get their mouth taken care of. Do you do that? We tell them, let the dentist know you're on it. Don't have any extractions without talking to us first. We want a gap of time. And, you know, people are informed just from the oral biphosphonate literature. And what I see is it seems to be if they're not on chemotherapy, there's much less of an incidence because there's probably the the inflammatory changes, the mucositis, the chemo right. probably potentiates it. So this woman has made a decision not to get chemo. She's now on tamoxifen, doing well, although I don't know, maybe you need to get worried that she's doing too well and not having vasomotor symptoms, but fortunately she is doing well. I guess she's going to have to live with the possibility that if she does have a recurrence, you know, looking back, should I have taken chemo? How did her husband feel about this, being a physician and all? Yeah, it was easy for him. He did not want her to get chemo. Hmm, interesting. That's why she sort of kicked him out because he said, I want to go through all the data and make the decision myself. 